Well, good morning, friends. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab those and turn with me to the book of Galatians. Uh, the book of Galatians, chapter number 3. We'll be there in just a moment. Uh, if you don't have a copy of God's Word, you should be able to find one of those at your seat back right in front of you. And if you need help trying to find uh, Galatians, please use the table of contents there in the front. That's no problem at all. If you don't have a Bible, please take that with you. That's our gift uh, to you. I'd like to say Merry Christmas to everybody. Uh, and so good to be with you all today. I'm looking out and there's a lot of faces that I don't know. Um, so let me just introduce myself to you. My name is Derek. I serve as one of the elders here at Tri-Cities and I've uh, been on staff for about five years or so, I guess it's been now, at Tri-Cities in different capacities and for the past three years of that uh, as our campus pastor at our Johnson City location. So if you're a guest with us and don't know, we're a multi-site church, which just simply means instead of all gathering here at this building, we choose to still covenant together, but gather in two different locations so that we can more strategically reach the folks there in South uh, Johnson City. So it's a humble honor to be here with you today. Uh, Pastor Mike and I did the switcheroo, so I was sharing the first service. Uh, they're there learning what good preaching's like. I'm here to put you to sleep. Uh, that's what, how that's going to go this morning. Uh, we get to continue on in our series uh, that we've called Advent, and we called it Advent not because we're creative and just want to come up with a name for a series. Uh, it really is more than a sermon series for us. Uh, it's kind of a, a season of the church that's kind of been historic throughout the centuries, where we as the people of God look back at the first advent or coming of Jesus. Advent is just a fancy Latin word that means the coming of Christ. And so we now as the people of God look back and say, what are the implications of that happening? But we also realize there's promises that God, God has made and we now look forward for him to come again. That he's made a promise to us that he will come again. There will be a second advent where he will come and make all things new, even us. And so what does it look like for the people of God to live faithful lives in between? Uh, so that's what we've been talking about. So you can almost say that the first coming of Jesus as our king inaugurated the kingdom. That is here and it's breaking through and he's purchased certain things for us. And we now live as citizens of this kingdom and one day our king will come again to fully culminate all of these promises that he's made for us. And so throughout the series we've looked at three so far and we'll look at a last one um, this morning, as we look into Christmas morning. So that's what Advent does. It prepares our hearts for Christmas Day. I hope you come back. Uh, Christmas Eve, Saturday night, as both campuses come together. And then, of course, Christmas Day, don't forget, we have a family service here. So I hope that you come. What better things to do on Christmas morning than to celebrate with your church family the, that Jesus came to save us. Um, but we've been looking at the implications of his coming and his coming again, leading up to culminating on Christmas Day coming up this weekend. And so we've said so far that Jesus' is coming and his coming again is first uh, to be our hope. That in the midst of our hopelessness, Jesus comes and says, I'm giving you confident assertion of what's going to happen in the future because of what I'm going to do for you. He is our hope. But we learned the week after that, that that hope kind of takes shape and we understand what is our hope in, what does he come to do in this hope message? Well, he comes to be our peace. And we understand that peace is not just the absence of conflict, it's the presence of flourishing. It's everything set right. We now have peace with God and we have the peace of God in our souls and we work for the peace of God on earth as we see all things set right we as the people of God, as citizens of this kingdom, are working for that kind of restoration because that's God's heart. He came for that. But then last week, Pastor Paul was explaining to us that this, what's the purpose of all of that? What's the bullseye in the midst of him restoring a people and reconciling a people for himself? And that work of God is our hope. Why? And we saw last week that this good news is of great 
joy. And this great joy is for all the people. That God is wanting to get his glory through you being utterly satisfied in who he is. He's after your joy. But today, uh, I kind of have the task in front of me is to even kind of, you, maybe you've been here for the last three weeks, or maybe you just heard that little summary, this is your first time, and you would say, yeah, but how can I know that that's true? Why in the world, if you say that this God exists, and we believe he does, but why would he want anything to do with us? Why would he ever come into the world in the first place? Why would he ever work to restore all things? Why is, does he care at all about our joy? And so today we're going to talk about one of the perhaps most profound, deep theological truths that's ever been penned, ever. You ready for it? Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. Now we're not going to preach from that little nursery rhyme thing. We're going to preach from the Word. But there's a lot of theology packed into that phrase that our kids have grown up singing. Jesus loves you. Now, I think from most everyone in this room, that is not the first time you've heard that. In fact, it's probably many times you've heard that. Do not let that just kind of land and just bounce off and run off. Jesus loves you. You say, well, Derek, how can I know? Because I've heard people like you saying those things for a long time. How can I be confident that God loves me? Because I don't feel very lovely. I don't necessarily feel his love. I look around the world and I wonder how a loving God could do all that. All these things that are happening in this world. And, and I hope that what we see today is, listen, we could look at our experiences. And I could, we could maybe take through our lives and say, look at this. See what God was doing there? Of course he loves you. Look at how he's at work in your life. And we could go through our experiences and logic and all these things. But ultimately, we know God loves us. You know why? Because the Bible tells us so. We know he loves us because he said so. Let me just ask you, is that enough for you? Can you say, he told me he loves me, and I can have a confident assertion that it is true. He loves me because the Bible tells me so. We're going to look at what a picture of how that happens. But I know I'm talking to some people this room in the room this morning and probably about four different categories, and I know we can't put souls into a box, but I'm going to try to put you into a box this morning. I know there's some people here, and you even being in this room was a big uh, step for you. You're an unbeliever, or maybe you're a skeptic, and you're here because your friend that you're sitting next to perhaps pestered you for weeks to come be here. And I just hope that you see, for, maybe for the first time in your life, this gospel message that Jesus really is for you. He loves you. If you'll turn from your sin and yourself and trust who he is and what he's done. And I'm praying that for you. I pray you see his love in a fresh way today. Then there's some of us that I know that we have experienced the love of God, but you're the person I was talking about earlier that's just, you say, Derek, you don't know what I've done. You don't know where I've been. Um, My life is falling apart. My marriage is falling apart. The holidays for me are not very merry. And for me to think about that, you know what, I know the Bible says God loves me, but listen, I'm having a really hard time believing that God is for me, that God loves me. Because he doesn't seem like he's doing too much good in my life, or maybe it isn't, I just don't feel very like he, whatever, he's done with me, I've done too much. Maybe that's you. And I know there's some other people in the room that when we hear the love of God, you don't have any issues with that at all. Matter of fact, that's kind of where your theology stops And I think some of us have a really maybe faulty understanding and definition of the love of God that kind of reduces the love of God down to some cheap sentimentality that God loves us because it's kind of this fluffy emotionalism. And definitely God feels things for us. Let's not 
reduce that, but his love for us is so much more rich and robust and true than that. His love for us is more rooted in truth than our experience and our feelings of it. It's more defined by him and who he is rather than our culture and who we are. So let's not have a shortened view of love that just merely says that as God loves me and that he's just for me to give me whatever I want. That's a bad view of love and when we talk about the love of God. But then there's still others of us that you may, in an effort to push back against that kind of idea, is to say that love of God is just merely academic for you. That you don't want to have, to have any kind of talk about experiencing love or feeling love because we want to be centered around truth and what he says. And although that's, if we're going to be erring on any of those, it's probably the side we need to err on. But it becomes, when you say God loves me, it becomes an academic thing, a theological category that you have. And it has never, or at least in a long time, ever really gotten down into your soul that he loves you. You can parse it and exegete it and do all the things and inscribe it with great clarity. But are you living in the reality of his love? So it starts with cognition. We've got to know that God loves us. We're going to look at that from his word today. We've got to understand why and how and how deep his love. But that can't stop there. It has to go from our minds and let that transform us at a deep fundamental level. And be transformed at a soul level so that then we could say when we see that God loves us, it changes the way we love him back. That's what John says. We love God because he first loved us. And if God loves us, then we ought also to love one another. Is that See, when you understand the love of God cognitively and you understand what the truth says it is, that, that same truth, we don't leave that truth, but we go deeper into it to where it begins to change us from a deep level. And it actually then begins to shape the way we live and what we do and the things that we're about. So what I'm praying for all of us, whatever what category we fall in, and, and to be honest, probably some variation, some ebb and flow of all of those, to be honest with you. Here's what I'm praying. It's from 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, the words we have on the screen. He says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us. I'm praying that He, by His grace, gives us that reality. That we can see what kind of love. Not just a mere, yes, I know God loves me, but that we would be able by the power of the Spirit to see what kind of love it is that we're talking about. So how does he link his love? You want to know the depth of God's love? John says, look at it. That we should be called children of God. And so we are. You want to know if God loves you? Look at what he's done for us in adoption. So I'm going to read this quote from this guy named J.I. Packer. And so he's probably smarter than all of us cumulatively in the room. And this is in his book, Knowing God. I want to read it to you. The words will be up behind me. He says, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and his prayers and his entire outlook on life, it means... He does not understand Christianity very well at all. Adoption, he goes on to say, is the highest privilege that the gospel offers. Now, that's one man saying something about what he's seen through the scriptures. So let's today look at the scriptures ourselves. So I have you there in Galatians 3. Let's begin reading in verse 23. So we're going to look at this beautiful passage that talks to us about this adoption, that this love of the Father, that we should be called the children of God. What in the world does this mean? And what does this have to do with Christmas uh, time? So let's just begin reading Galatians 3, verse 23. We'll go all the way down into chapter 4 a little bit as well. So 
hear the word of God. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, listen, you are all sons of God. How does that happen? He says it's through faith. That's important. We'll come back to that. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way also, when we were children, we're enslaved to the elementary, elementary principles of the world. So here's where we'll be camping out this morning, verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. No longer a slave, but a son. We should sing a song about that, shouldn't we? We just... We just did, okay? Because in the Bible, while we sing the songs that we do, it's a beautiful reality of what God's saying to us. If you want to see God's love for you, look at what he's done in adoption. So we see here that God shows his love for us by sending us his son, verse 4. He sent his son to do something. We're going to talk about what it is that the son came to do. But then in verse 6, it says that he shows his love for us in sending us his spirit. What is the Spirit working? What is He doing? So we're going to unpack this together. And we know that this sending of the Son and the sending of the Spirit is all out of love because it agrees with the rest of the New Testament. We know John 3.16, right? Words of Jesus. For God so loved the world that He what? Gave His only Son. Out of love, He sends His Son into the world. And that is the message uh, of Christmas, Right? But we also know in John, uh, Romans chapter 5 that God shows his love. He demonstrates his love in that while we were still sinners, what did he do? Christ died for us. So you want to know why it's true? How do we know God loves for us? Look at the gospel of Jesus Christ who comes into the human existence, lives the life you couldn't live, crawls up on your cross and takes your place and rises again. He demonstrates his love. And he didn't do that for you because you were lovely he did it for you to die for you to make you lovely because he says while well, you were still sinner, Somebody might die for a good person, but not too many people are going to die for their enemies. And that's what Jesus says, I've done for you. You want to you, you doubt my love? Look what I have done for you in the gospel. God so loved that he sent his son and he sent his spirit. So what we're going to see today, I pray by his grace through his word, is the beauty of this triune God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, who are all active in rescuing us, in redeeming you, in redeeming me. And as I'm praying that we would marvel and worship and that we would awe as we see uh, this love on display. So first, God loves, shows his love for us.
by sending us his son. Let's reread chapter 4, verse 4 and 5 again uh, to pick up on this, okay? But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So how about this for a Christmas verse? It doesn't get a lot of press uh, during this season, but man, it is gloriously true that a, at the right time, when all these things were coming together, that God sent a Messiah through a virgin, that that Messiah was going to, through his life and through his death, save his people from their sins. At the right time, Jesus entered in. And so this is a reality, guys, listen, that I hope doesn't just leave us during, as we gather with our families that may not know Jesus over the weekend is that Christmas fundamentally, the story of Christmas, is that salvation, if it's going to be had by us, if we're ever going to have hope, if we're ever going to have peace, if we're ever going to have joy, if we're ever going to experience love, it has to come from outside of us. There's no hope for this kind of salvation, this kind of restoration to happen from within us or around us because we are the problem. We are the ones that have rebelled against God. And so there has to be one from outside coming into us. That when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son in the human history it's a staggering good news and we got to understand the layers of this and to understand the layers of this we got to understand what he means by these two phrases the son came into the world by the sending of the father for two reasons what does he say to redeem us those who are under the law we got to know what that means and to receive us the right to become sons of God, the adoption of sons so what in the world does that mean let's unpack it together okay to see the depths of this gospel So Jesus came to redeem you and to redeem me who were under the law. So what does that mean? We don't understand that. We're not going to understand the beauty of it, how much he loves you, if you don't understand what that phrase means. So Galatians 3, let's go back. It's why we read the context, verse 23 and 24. Let's get some ideas of what he means by this phrase, under the law. It says, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith, not by our works. So you've got to understand the, the book of Galatians, Paul's writing to this church at Galatia and they had all these people that were trying to understand life together and some were saying for you to be right with God, it's Jesus and what he has done plus circumcision or plus good works, plus these Jewish rites. And what Paul is writing to say is, no, 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 it's, This gospel is so full and so beautiful that it's just Jesus plus nothing. That we do not add anything to this being right with God. And so he's writing to them to understand. He's having a conversation that we cannot just jump into. We have to understand he's writing to tell us about this, how we have to see the law. The law is not something we add to our lives to make us more right with God. Because it never works. That's what he's trying to unpack for us here. So I think these two verses can be described in this way. The law shows us that we are accountable but we are unable. So the law, listen, is nothing wrong with the law. The law is good. The law reflects to us the heart and the character and the nature of God. And so God called out his people, if you remember, in Exodus. He said, you're going to be my chosen people. But then he says, if you're going to live as the people of God, you have to reflect me. You have to reflect my heart. So I'm going to give you the law to show you what this kind of life needs to look like, this covenant life. But here's the problem. Even though the law was good, and it was the heart of God, it was for their flourishing and for their good, because of sin and our rebellious in our hearts, we don't have in us what it takes to fully obey the law and enough to be right before a holy God. 
What the law simply comes to us to do is shows the heart of God and it reveals to us our sin. See, listen, the law doesn't make us sinners. The law just simply shows us how sinful we are. It's as if you were sitting in a dark room and all this danger around you and you're completely oblivious to it until a light turns on and shows you your real condition. And that's exactly what the law is for us, that we have rebelled against God, but yet the law comes in and shows us how bad it actually is. It shows us the character of God. So we no longer compare ourselves to our standards and the standards of other people, but we begin to compare ourselves in the presence of Almighty God. So the law is good. We're morally accountable. Do the law. This is the way that is right. But yet in our sin, we are held captive by this law. The more you try, C.S. Lewis said it like this, no one has really understood how bad he is until he's tried very hard to be good. The law The more you try to go to it to be your source of life, to make you right with God, the more you're going to see how deep your sin actually is. So, friends, listen. The law is never going to make us right with God. We are under the law in that we are accountable to it, but we're also under it in the fact that we're enslaved by it. That it shows us this beauty of this relationship with God, and then it's as if there's a barrier between us and this God. That we can't fully experience all that he has. So he uses this words like, like a guardian that kind of points us to Christ. And it's showing us that, hey, we needed what we just sang. That Jesus has come to save us because you can't save you. And I can't save you. No one, you look all around, nothing, there's no hope unless Jesus is who he says he is. And that Jesus really did what he says he will do. So we're all under the law. And because we've rebelled against it, we are now under the wrath of God because of it. That's what he's saying is you are under it. But here's this beautiful word that comes out in our, in our, in our text here in verse 5. He says, listen, verse 4 rather. He says, you are under the law, cursed by it, but Christ has come to redeem you. Here that word redeem is rich and it's beautiful and we don't have time to unpack it in all of its depth and all of its beauty, but it's as if to say literally to be redeemed is to buy back, it's to purchase as if a slave is going to be set free. So see, get this picture. We are now enslaved to ourselves because of the law. Can't get fully to experience all that God's promised us in, in His grace. What are we going to do? We have all this stuff that we're supposed to obey, but we don't have the ability in us to obey it. I'm going to insert Jesus, insert the good news of Christmas, that Jesus says, I will come for you. Fully man, born of a woman, it says. I'm coming as your representative. I'm coming as a fully human to live the life and to keep the law, listen, that you can't keep. So we always talk about Jesus' death being our salvation, and that is gloriously true, but his death would not be saving if his life was not perfectly submitted to the Father in all things. He saves us even by his life. He's fulfilled the law for you. Hebrews 2 says that Jesus had to become like us, like his brothers, that he might be our high priest to actually fully represent us before the Father. So he was born of a woman, and that Jesus was even born under the law. Submitted the same thing that we were called to submit to and failed, but yet Jesus did not fail. Amen? That is good news. Born under the law. His perfect life, constant obedience, submission to the Father. So as a man, fully man, Jesus, he reversed this curse by being our representative. But by being fully God, he was the only one, the only substitute worthy to actually pay for our sins. So his life fulfills the law for us. And his death, listen, was in your place as a lawbreaker. Because remember, Jesus did no sin. It was your account that was put on Jesus so that 
you wouldn't have to pay it. He died instead of you. And he rose again just as a confirmation to say, what I paid for on the cross worked. My checks don't bounce, right? Like I have the payment that it takes to pay for your sin. Church, this is love. He would do this for us. That's why Galatians 3, 13, right before this passage we'll read today, Paul's writing, he says, Christ, here's our word, redeemed us from the curse of the law. That we, We're under it. We can't ever get out of it. Just reveals to us and gives, gives us nothing. Um, one of the old songs said, um, the law shows says fly, but it doesn't give us wings. So what's, how are we going to get out of this curse? Well, the good news is Jesus did this. He redeemed us. How did he do it? By becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that barrier that we feel and experience and this reality between us and God because of the law, because of our sin, Jesus experienced that and said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that you would never have to experience that ever again for those who have placed faith in Jesus. Man, that's good news. But it doesn't stop there. I'm not going to say there's more full rich than that but it's like there's something else he didn't just save you to say i'm going to save you to forgive you of your sins and then just kind of push you out into life and say i hope you can make it no no no. it actually goes deeper because he says let's go go back to our text he says to redeem us under the law so that verse five we might receive adoption as sons he did come to redeem you to buy you back to pay your debt but he also came so that you could receive full rights of, of adoption. So if we're going to understand this, we've got to go back. Let's go back to chapter 3, verse 25 and through 29. Let's read it again and understand, okay, this idea of sonship. When he says to receive adoption as sons, what does this mean? So let's go back and grab it to see the beauty that's unfolding before us. Verse 25 in chapter 3. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, listen, you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So for our ladies in the room, he's like, all right, we're all sons of God, but what about the daughters? Can I get a witness? I mean, where, where's that at? And listen, it, was, it would be wrong for us to say adoption as sons and daughters here. There's other places where it talks about children of God. Here's what it means. In, in this kind of society, this culture, to be a son was to mean you were a recipient of the inheritance. Sadly to say, in that culture, the women weren't able to receive all the rights of this, of, of this inheritance, of what it meant to be part of the family. So if you were the son, you were the one that had full rights, full access to have everything that the father owns. And so this is actually pretty countercultural because what Paul's saying is that we are all sons of God. Even the ladies in the room that are followers of Christ. You are a son of God in that you have full rights and full access to be a recipient of the inheritance and an heir of God. This is for every one of us. He says he pulled you in and included you in this. And this unity in Jesus is so full and so rich that now the things that used to divide us now unite us. This is not saying these distinctions of verse 28 aren't, don't exist anymore. Of course they exist. Of course there's still males and females. But it's saying that used to be a cause to keep us away from each other in our life. But because of the fullness of what Jesus has accomplished for us, now these differences are no longer reasons for division, but they're parts of unity. And together we reflect something beautiful about who God is. 
Because we are united in Christ. We are adopted together as He's our Father. We are brothers and sisters together. And that's full. That's rich. How is it impossible? Verse 26 says this is not just for everybody. He says for those who are in Christ by faith. Everyone in this world are not children of God. In this sense. This is only for those who have by faith seen that Jesus is who he says he is. And I want to be in him. And it uses beautiful words like we have now put on Jesus. Friends, that's what it means to be a Christian. If you're here investigating this, it does not mean do more, try harder. It means that Jesus lived the life you couldn't, lived for you, and you are right with God, not because of what you do, but because Jesus' righteousness, his perfect account is put on you. That is love. And so here's what he's, he's saying. When that happens, that union happens, everything changes. Legally, our legal status before our God, it says, you are a son. You are part of my family. You belong with me. Just as if in an earthly adoption, when you adopt a child, when they, the gavel swings and it says, you are now the father, father and mother of this child, everything about that child's life, everything about that, your life has just been radically transformed. They share your name. They share every rights and privileges. So brothers and sisters, this is what this means for us today. This is what's true of you right now. Has this been true of your reality this week? Have you lived like this? I'm a loved child of God who is a recipient of and an heir of the inheritance of all that God has. It's who I am. It's my identity. Because it is gloriously true. So what he does, he wants to help us understand this. So in verse 1 of chapter 4, all he's doing is now he's going to give us an illustration of that, of the sonship. So he says in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. Okay, understand this? Let's just time out for a second. We've got to understand Greco-Roman adoption. Anybody excited about that? No? Okay, here we go. Um, imagine that you are a wealthy Roman family, a part of a wealthy Roman family, and then you see a slave out here that you want to redeem, buy back, and put into your family. At that point, that kid goes from no longer a slave, and all that that means, he is now a part of your family as a son or a daughter in your home. He has every right to you. You're no longer this dignitary, this powerful ruler in Rome. You are his daddy. And everything that he has is at your disposal. But what Paul is trying to say to us here, it was like the way in that day, until you were 25 years old, kind of come of age, is that you had those rights and privileges, but you didn't have full access to them. So you had the inheritance of your father. All that your family had was yours, but you didn't have full access to it. It was as if there was a barrier there. Until they, so to speak, come of age to where they can actually do with their inheritance what they will. So he's, he likens that to the relationship that we have with God in the law. So you have all these promises because you are adopted. God's choosing to do this. But before Christ, it was like that. That God was kind of a distant. He's still our father. We have a relationship with him. But it's, it's hindered because of our inability to keep the law. But then verse 4 happens. And it's gorgeous. He says, but when the fullness of time had come, literally the gospel is the grand coming of age. That we now, because of what Jesus has accomplished for us, have no barriers between us and our Father. 
all the rights and the inheritances that he's purchased for us is fully ours. And we can experience that today. We are joint heirs with Christ right now. That's who you are. And one day when he comes again, we'll experience this in vivid color and full actuality. But it is true of you today. No barriers. She says, Derek, how is this possible? Are you, are you, this, there's no way that God is going to not just treat Jesus and the gospel the, the way only I deserve. That's what happened in, in Christmas. It happened in the gospel stories that God treated Jesus how he should have treated you. But it doesn't stop there. Now, because of his grace, because you're in Christ, he now chooses to treat you the way he ought to treat Jesus. So you ask, how much does God love me? The answer, just as much as he loves Jesus. So Derek, that's almost, I don't even know if you can say it that way. Well, Jesus said in John 17, let's look at his words, the glory that you have given me. Notice, this is God the Son talking to God the Father before he pays for your debt. John 17, 22, the glory that you've given me, I've given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, get this, and loved them, what does it say? Even as you loved me. Y'all didn't do too good at that, let's do that again. He says, and loved them, what? Even as you loved me. I'm praying, God, that you would love them the way you love me right now. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. This is love. But I promise this last point will be a lot shorter than the first one, but it doesn't even stop there. Because he said, yes, I love you by sending the Son to do all this for you, but I also love you in that I've sent my Spirit for you. It says in Galatians 4, God with us actually becomes God in us. It says in verse 6, And because you are sons, because all of this has been true of you, you are now recipients and heirs of all that God has. God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Romans 8, Paul almost mirrors this exactly. I want to read it to us because it's so rich and good. Romans 8, 15, the words will be up behind me. It says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. There's our phrases all over the place. By whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So yes, God is working in human history. Listen, is it an objective reality of all that we've been talking about this morning? It's true. He actually came, he actually lived, he actually died for you. It's available. It's, it's rooted in fact. But listen, to be adopted as sons is not just to know that and to have that record on you, it's to experience it every day. An adopted child doesn't rest on the legal court documents and the day when the, when the gavel was swung. That's not what that child rests on to know that mom and dad are mom and dad, right? They know mom and dad are mom and dad because of the way they live their life, because they sit at the same table together and they are loved and disciplined and corrected by mom and dad. That's how they experience the adoption. It's true for us, friends. Like, this is a reality in your life. But are you living it out? 
Are you resting in it? Because the Spirit's work in you among a lot of things that He's doing in you right now. God says, I want you to experience my love so much that I put me in you. The Spirit is indwelt you to make you like Jesus. But what this scripture is telling us in Galatians and in Romans and other places is that He's saying, I don't want you to operate as a slave anymore. Do not see God as if you are a slave and he's your taskmaster. Instead, the Spirit is changing you into making this objective reality of the gospel real and tangible so that you say, I am a child of God. He is my Father. I'm loved. I'm loved. I'm loved by him. And everything that he has, I have access to. Right into his presence. And this word cry is so beautiful in the original language. If you study it, it's not just a kind of cry tears. It's a loud, passionate, emotional response of intimacy. It's from a deep place of your soul crying out. That's what the Spirit's doing in you. And the word Abba, Father, we've, I think we've kind of dumbed it down a little bit and calling that Daddy. I mean, I think it is. It's definitely that intimacy that we can call God. Is, he's, it's so close that He's our Daddy. That is absolutely true. But as I was studying for this this week, I saw something I've never seen before. I'm going to step away from the pulpit for a second to say, we don't know if this is why Paul chose to do what I'm about to describe to you. But this is the reality. So Galatians is written in Greek. So you don't understand the Bible isn't written in American, right? It's written in Greek. Um, when he gets to that word Abba, it's not written in Greek. It's actually written in Aramaic. It's an Aramaic term. So well, what does that matter? And so commentators argue about that a lot as commentators tend to do and so we don't really know but what we do know is that Jesus's language you know what he spoke when he was here he spoke Aramaic of course he knew Greek and Hebrew but that was the language of Jesus it was the language of the commoners and we know for a fact that Jesus at least once used this phrase for his father remember when it was the garden of Gethsemane right before he took your place he falls on his face and says God my God if there's any other way let this cup pass from me call out Abba Father, Daddy, I need you in this moment. And so that level of intimacy that Jesus had with the Father, we don't know if that's why the language is broken down the way it is, but it's definitely a reality. So what Paul's trying to get us to understand is you have such an intimacy and access to God the Father is that you have the same kind of intimacy that Jesus had with Him. Because you're in Christ. He looks at you and doesn't see you in your sin. He sees you with the righteousness of Jesus placed on you. Run to your to your Abba for everything that you need. It's a vivid picture. You have access. And so listen, back to our, the way we began, I promise this is the way we're going to close. Uh, don't let those two things be separate in your mind. Those objective realities of the gospel. Don't just want the experience and the feeling without the objective realities of the word of God because that's how we get to the depth of God's love for us. But don't just sit here cognitively understanding that what Jesus had accomplished 2,000 years ago without it getting down to your everyday experience and changing you to say, I am a loved son of God. Live like it. Live like it. So as the band's getting ready behind me, I just want to read this passage as, as the end. I promise this is the last phrase I'm going to say, and we'll get out for lunch, okay? But here's what Paul prayed for the church at Ephesus, and I want to pray it over us today. Ephesians 3.16 says this. So focus in on the words, on the screen okay don't let the, the movement keep you from what he's saying to you right now it says that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being that's the depth part of your soul so that christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that word dwell literally means make your home 
his home in your heart. That you being rooted and grounded in love, there's our word, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That is what I'm praying for us during this Advent season as we culminate leading into Christmas Day this weekend. I pray that you have time to steal away with your Father and to meditate and to ponder the privileges of what it means for you to be adopted into His family. That that His Spirit would strengthen you, that you could even comprehend how deep and how wide and how beautiful His love is for you. That it actually surpasses knowledge. That's what the Spirit's doing, is to make this a real love experience for you. So if you'll bow with me, we're going to sing this song in response, but I want to just give you a moment to listen to what God is saying to you through His Word. He wants you to see how much He loves you and how much He's for you, that if God did not spare His own Son, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? So we ask you to come and say, you have bold assurance. You have intimate access. Run to your Father this morning. Be His child. Let Him love you the way He is so clearly shouting that He does. We have a humble freedom that, just like the prodigal son, that came back after messing everything up and not wanting the love of the Father, he says, I'm not even worthy to be called your son. Just look, treat me as a slave. And we see that he doesn't do that. He treats us, pours out lavish grace on his boy. And some of you, that's what you need to do. You need to run back to the Father and receive his grace for you. We're no longer a slave. You no longer have to fear, but we are children of God. You have an eternal inheritance. So let us stop living like we have deficit in our lives. Live out of an abundance that you have access to everything that God is. He's for you. And if God is for you, who can be against you? Nothing can separate you from this love. That together we're united as family. And you're not going to experience the love of God if you're not in community with your brothers and sisters here. So I implore you to not just be present here on a Sunday, but be fully engaged in your family here because we're brothers and sisters and we need one another to fully experience God as our Father. And may we not deceive ourselves and listen, use God's love for us as an excuse to not obey Him. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So let's just ask, if we're not obeying Jesus and the things He's called us to do is because we don't trust His love for us. We don't really love Him back. So we need to do what Jesus told us to do in John 15 and abide and remain in His love. If you're here today, friend, if you don't know Jesus, come to Jesus. Turn from your sin and yourself. See the love that he has for you, what he's done for you, and put faith that he will save you and adopt you into your, his family. Do that today. Why would you not turn to Jesus? As we sing this song, I pray it's from a deep place of our soul, and we can say we're no longer slaves, we're sons. So let's stand and sing this out from the, as loudly as we possibly can. Okay, church?